exciting delectation. It's going to be about not self. <laughs> okay, well, in many ways the teaching of not self is certainly what delineates Buddhist thought from, if you want to call it a religious thought, from any other form of religious thinking. It's the only tradition which has this almost counterintuitive thought within it. Most other religious traditions, I'm not saying they're better or worse or anything, they're just different, tend to look at the nature of the self and look at what the self is. And if it's the Indian traditions from which the Buddha is really coming, obviously from, trying to find the nature of the real self. So that really forms the background about what the Buddha is, you know, in a sense, arguing against. Is that Indian tradition, what's called Atavada Upadana, which is actually the grasping after the self, the grasping after the Atta. That tradition had a very long history. I don't want to go into this in too much detail because it takes away from the practice, but I really want to just, just outline this for you to understand it. That tradition had a long history dating back to the Upanishads. And the Upanishads have the notion of something called Atman. It's the same as the Pali Atta. Um, the Atman was the real self. And the whole goal of really Upanishadic thinking, without you know, kind of going into too much detail about it, the whole goal of Upanishadic thinking was to realise that self, was to come upon it. It was unchanging, it was fixed, it was immutable, it was outside of space and time. It was the eternal thing in the universe. And it was one with that which grounded everything in the universe. And this kind of thinking, as you probably gathered, has a, had a resurgence, particularly in the top mess region, <laughs> in, in, in terms of Advaita Vedanta, um, which is based on it. And I've often given talks as to why Advaita is not Buddhism, um, because it really isn't. It's the opposite movement. It's about really the understanding of this nature of the self and the union of it with Brahman, ultimately. It's a very, very simplistic view of it, but that's basically its model. So the Upanishad, Upanishadic thinkers really came up with the idea that there was this fixed immutable self. And really that is the word to really, as I say, concentrate on. The word fixed, unchanging, outside of space and time. The Buddha himself, of course, said basically, in my experience I can't find such a thing. When I look for this, almost echoing David Hume, the Scottish philosopher in the 18th century, he said, when I look inside myself, for myself, all I can find is a bundle of perceptions. I can't find anything fixed which can actually be labelled a self. So, the Buddha really was saying that in his experience he cannot find anything which is immutable. And these thoughts have been echoed down through the ages in various forms. I was very struck a few years ago when I was reading the short stories of Catherine Mansfield. I don't know if anybody's read these. I mean, she's a wonderful writer. But she once said, she said, um, when I hear this expression, be true to thyself, I often wonder what it means. Because when I look inside, I feel like a concierge in a hotel with a hundred guests. <laughs> 
you know, that's the feeling. You know, which self do you want to be today? You, know, you can almost choose. There is that lack of immutability uh, within ourselves. So the Buddha is arguing against something very specifically. Now, the big question for us, of course, in terms of our practice and being in the Western world, does this make sense for us? Do we have the idea of a fixed self? And I think we do, in many ways. But not in the same way as the Upanishadic thinkers. What we have is the notion of me and mine and I, very, very strongly. From the Buddhist perspective, this is actually wrong view, having the notion of me, my, and I, you know, mine and I. It's Michadati, which is actually the wrong view. And if you have a notion of your Eightfold Path, then of course what is the first of the Eightfold Path, which is right view, appropriate view. So actually grasping after self is an inappropriate view, will actually will lead to many of the ills which we suffer from. In fact, in many ways, I would say that it is the main problem that we suffer from, is <coughs> attachment to I, this attachment to the I that we have, whilst in the same time hating the whole idea of being individuated and separated. It's this double polarity, have you ever noticed this? This thing, you, you want I want to be an individual. I don't want to be alone. <laughs> you know, how individual individual do you want to become? Yeah. Without getting that feeling of aloneness. And actually, one of the big things in the Western world is often a feeling of loneliness. It really is. Yeah. We often feel very, very alone. We feel very, very cut off from each other. In Buddhist psychology, most of the facets of mind which are developed to be developed, the wholesome facets of mind are actually about decreasing the grasp on self. So just take the two most obvious ones, the two most obvious ones, metta, karuna, kindness and compassion. In the original languages, and you have to take this on trust, but in the original languages they have a kind of sticky quality to them. That is makes, it's that which makes you adhere to another. So in other words, they bring you out and they glue you to others in a certain sense. So kindness and compassion bring you out, whilst the negative emotions, such as anger, jealousy, stinginess, envy, they all make you retreat into yourself. So one draws you out, and this is what I want to take you, this is what I want to bring out at this point, one brings you out, draws you out into the world, one set of qualities, those which are called the wholesome or the sabana qualities of mind, diminishing our sense of self, whilst others make us retreat back into ourselves. So there's the cutting off and the bringing out, the cutting off and the bringing out all the time. That which cuts us off from the world and that which brings us out into the world. And that's our choice, really. Now, the Buddha takes the sense of what is unitary. The sense of this unitary self. Now, we don't necessarily, I would think, most of us have this idea of the fixed Atman going to union with Brahman. If you've done a lot of yoga, perhaps in yogic traditions, you might have that. Um, but I don't think it's much of an idea that we have in the West these days. But if 
you have any sense of the I, it's something you feel very strongly, often as being unitary, and certainly what we would perhaps label as the ego. You know, ego consciousness, in other words. A consciousness which is devolved down onto the self, onto a notion of the self. Usually experienced in terms of me and mine. Ownership. And that which is detached from ownership. And I gave you a little example yesterday about the difference between an object which is mine and an object which is yours. And how much that little... how, how much that little word mine indicates difference in the way that we apprehend the two objects albeit even if they're identical. So what the Buddha does is he takes a sense, and this is a typical Buddhist methodology, and in some sense is actually what you're doing on yourself, even in the meditation process, is you're taking the sense of unitariness and breaking it down, and showing that in the unitariness in itself is actually illusory. That everything that appears... To, sorry. What do you mean by unitary? Unitary, not dependent on causes and conditions. Well, it's existence. So in other words, it can't be broken down any further. So let me just... That's a very good question. Let me just come back to that. Because let's take this Indian notion, which obviously the Buddha is, is arguing against. The notion of Brahman, if it was to be the ultimate thing upon which everything else depended, couldn't be dependent on something else itself. Does everybody follow that? Because mm. yeah. in other words, if Brahman as an entity, or let's take in the Western theistic tradition, if God depended on something, something would be greater than God, or would be greater than Brahman. So the whole idea was that this ultimate entity, the unitary entity, couldn't be broken down any further. Couldn't be composed of causes and conditions. Now, as you probably know from your readings and hearing Dharma talks and that, this is not the Buddhist way. The Buddhist way is to take this sensory of unitariness and to show its composite, that it's actually composed out of causes and conditions. That everything that there is, and this in a sense leads us into where we're going next week, everything that there is, is a dependent arising. That there is nothing in this world which arises ex nihilo, out of nothing. Everything arises out of some prior cause or condition. And this is true of almost this automatic response that we have some sense of unitariness within us, particularly, as I say, on strong emotional reactions to things. You know, when everything goes like that, and you feel tightly closed in on yourself, you feel my word, I'm a self at this point. You know, because I am angry. You know, I'm hurt. I'm upset. Particularly in negative emotions. Notice how that slightly fades when you're brought out into the world there. It's the negative emotions that really reinforce that sense of self. You know, one's about possession. About being an I. I often do this when, when I'm teaching this in places where I have a whiteboard or something. I used to probably Tony seeing me do this. I write up the, the first person pronoun in English. It only works in English. But 
If you write I on the board in English, doesn't it look terribly lonely? <laughs> it looks cut off, stick-like. This poor little lonely isolated eye that's so desperately having to be held together in some way or another. However, you feel it very strongly in those negative emotions. Which is why sometimes we cling to negative emotions. Because we feel our most ourselves, in scare quotes, when we are in these very strong in the grip of these very strong, powerful thoughts and emotions. So, you know, it's very easy, isn't it, you know, for a Buddhist teacher to sit in front of you and say, well, let go of these negative thoughts and emotions. Okay? Very, very easy indeed to sit up here and say it. But actually, the reason why you don't want to do it a lot of the time is because I get a sense of identity through having those thoughts, by having those emotions. I'm, in fact, deeply, deeply attached to my negativity. I'm deeply attached to my aversion. I know who I am when I don't like something. Yeah. Ever felt that? It's the same when you like something. It's the same when you like something. Doesn't yeah. have to be, I mean, that's not necessarily negative. Not necessarily negative, but I'm just trying to say why do we attach ourselves so strongly to negative emotions? Why do they keep occurring, why are they so difficult to get rid of, despite having been told, just let them go. <laughs> why it's so difficult to let them go? Because they're felt to be intrinsically part of yourself. I often make this point in relationship to habit patterns. And these can be quite innocuous things, very, very innocuous things. But imagine how attacked you feel, you feel, really directly, personally understand. So you've got You've got this rather irritating habit. Well, that's the way I am. Might be a response to that. that well, that's me. So this is, in a sense, this is these little slips in terms of language. When we say phrases like that, and put them in your own words if they don't make sense for you. But when we say phrases like that, it indicates very strongly how much we associate with those traits with those habit formations that we have. And I'll go into this a little bit further when I get into the much more slightly technical discussion of this. <clears throat> also, it will lead to obsessional thinking about worrying about yourself, worrying about your possessions, worrying about your things, those around you. Does she like me? Doesn't she like me? Does he like me? Doesn't she like me? <laughs> the me. Notice they're all coming back to me. Yeah. Yeah. All of that obsessional thing has a word. Of course, it always has a word in Buddhism. It's called propancha. Yeah. It means literally to spread out, to proliferate. It can be actually ruminative type thinking where you go down into the depths of thinking and obsessing. Actually, the chief meaning of this word, propancha, is to obsess about something. Yeah. Now, this propancha only comes about because of rootedness in the idea, and I will leave that slightly underlined here, the idea of self. The idea that we are somehow fixed. Now, actually... 
despite the fact that we cling very deeply to this notion of fixity you know, in habits and patterns and who we are and what we are, even though it still might be a question for us, I mean, it's been a question for countless millennia, hasn't it? Who am I? You know, that's almost the advaita question, who am I? You know, what am I? Let's go out and discover my real self. These are the sorts of questions that have been around for millennia that we've attempted to answer, that human beings have attempted to answer in the course of their inquiries. Now the Buddha, rather than going down that route of trying to ask who or what am I, really takes a completely different tack. How am I? Is the question that he asks. And that how am I gives us a radically different answer to the kind of question, what am I? Or who am I? The what am I, who am I questions tend to end up, in most cases, with some kind of metaphysical answer. They end up in the idea of something essential, some form of essentiality. Essentially, I am this type of person, yeah. and I can't change, is the implication. Yeah. That's the very practical implication. As soon as we begin to, in a way, look for this, and I send it up slightly, this real self, we are, in a sense, closing ourselves down, fixing ourselves. Now, the first level of emptiness... And there are many different levels of emptiness. The first level of emptiness that's often spoken about is the emptiness of self. And really when you hear emptiness of self, of course, hear emptiness of fixed self. And really that's, you know, I might be depressing you, as I did the first night I spoke. Um, but in a way that's the good news is the emptiness of fixed self. Everything can change with the recognition of the lack of fixity. That there is nothing within us which, in a sense, is unchangeable. That means there is, literally from the Buddhist perspective, nobody, at least in theory, irredeemable in this world. And hence the reason I mentioned on... Yeah, my first talk, that there are stories that proliferate throughout the Buddhist world of you know, wrongdoers and evildoers and that who come along to change in some point of time. And the whole point about those stories, as I said, was that nobody is incapable of change, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter where you've been. It's from the point of view of not-self is all highly irrelevant. What happens is now and the releasement of grasping after self, grasping after that. Now taking the sense of unitariness, the Buddha exposes in his asking, well how is this self? In saying how is this self, he's really saying, how does it work? How does it operate? And I do write to make this very clear, and I know many of you in this room have heard me say this, say last year, even at retreat, because I know some of you are coming back again. But I do like to emphasise this. Really, this is not a question of there being no self. 
And that's an important distinction, as I say, because a lot actually hangs on that one little consonant in English, the T, no or not self. Bear in mind that the Buddha was always trying to teach a middle way. The middle way primarily was the way between something that was eternal, hence all the stuff that we talked about in terms of the fixed self, because actually the Hindu idea, or what became the Hindu idea, was of a fixed self that was going to be reborn again and again and again, or reincarnated, actually, again and again. You know, it's the same thing taking up different forms. So it really was John being reincarnated. You know, until they found release from samsaric existence and dissolvement into the great vast thing in one sense that it came out of, which was Brahman. So it was the one thing that was being a unitary thing, the thing with identity that was actually being reincarnated again and again and again and again. Again. I hope you realise, of course, that's not the Buddhist idea. So that was the eternalistic end of the spectrum. Things that go on can be even seen in terms of theistic religious traditions as something like the immortal soul, yeah. that would find some kind of solace in a heavenly realm. Even the Greeks had that kind of idea. Then there was the other really rock upon which thinking could founder, which was the rock of nihilism. That nothing was important and nothing really existed. In saying that there was no self, you would be falling into the rock of nihilism, or falling into the abyss of nihilism, foundering on that rock of nihilism. In going into the essential, what I essentially am, you obviously go into eternalism. So the Buddha's way was steering away between is and is not. And actually that's the polarised way that we think. Either something is or it isn't. Yeah. There's actually a good word for that in Western philosophy. It's called the law of excluded middle. And that's in Western logic and it's um, encapsulated as being one of the main rules of Western logic. You can only say is or is not. So immediately, a lot of Western thought discounts the idea of a middle way, of between two extremes, that is, and an is not. So the Buddha is trying to put a middle way between these two extremes, between the eternalism and the nihilism that we can so easily fall into. Unless this all sounds too philosophical, I really hope it doesn't, but it's very difficult to explain this in any other way. These are the ways that we think. You know, when he was still present, I used to call this George Bushism. You know, you're either for me or against me. <laughs> you know, because that was the only two alternatives, wasn't it? You know, it's like that is and is not. And that's the extremes that we constantly fall into. You know, when we look for another, either you agree with me or you don't. And that excludes any other possible way. Are you with me or are you not with me? Yeah, and so I'm sure you can think up your own um, examples here. So the Buddha is trying to find that way between those two extremes, the is and the is not. And that way is to demonstrate how something works. How something, in a sense, is operating. Now you heard me talk a lot on the first evening that I was here 
about process. And you heard me say that the Buddha is the first process thinker. And in relationship to the notion of the self, the self really should be heard as a verb, not as a thing. So it both is and is not, in a sense. (laughs) The Buddha is not saying there is no self, and I think that's a very dangerous way of either teaching or even approaching it for yourself, that there is no self. What he's actually teaching is what is not self. And none of the things that you can identify composing up this working of a process that we ultimately label as being self, none of them are actually self. I mean, it's almost paradoxical. Here is a process which we label, and it is just a nominal way of approaching it. However, it's not nominal to us. It's actually felt very strongly for each and every one of us. But we project this onto these processes. And in a way, the Buddha is saying, if we're going to have any meaningful talk about what it means to be a self, then let's start. What do we have to have in in order to have any meaningful talk about self at all? Well, we have to have five processes. The processes of rupa, of body, of form, literally, in Pali and Sanskrit. There is the processes of form. This is everything which goes to make up the physical. It's usually spoken about in terms of the four great elements. Earth, fire, air and water. In other words, earth, and I'm not going to go into all of these, but earth is solidity. Water is fluidity. Fire is temperature. All of these go to make up. They are none of them static. And also, the Buddha says, if it was a self, if Rupa was a self, it would have one defining characteristic. It would be under control. <laughs> uh, and the one thing that we do know, and I'm reminded this forcibly every morning I look in the mirror, is this form isn't under control. You know, it's uh, doing its own thing, in a way. It's just you know, changing. It's aging. It's moving. It's not static. And even from a kind of more contemporary perspective, the body's cells are con- continuously renewing themselves. The body is being remade day to day, literally. So it's a process. And you might ask, well, how did ancient Indians know this? Well, there were such things called charnel grounds, in which they put bodies. So they actually had quite a good understanding to a, to a certain extent of anatomy at that early you know, point in history. Because they looked at bodies and what was going on in them. And one of the contemplations, as you will know, in the Satipatthana Sutta is a body in stages of decomposition. To actually bring it home that this body is not under control. It's not fixed. Then we come to another aggregate, which is the aggregate of Vedana, of of feeling. Now, I always find this is quite difficult in English, because although feeling is an accurate translation of the term Vedana, it comes with too many connotations in English, particularly emotion. Whereas more the connotation behind the word Vedana 
in Sanskrit and Pali is sensation. It's the immediate sensation that impresses itself upon you upon contact. And we'll see more of this independent origination. So it's immediately there for you. And that is spoken about as sukha, dukkha and asukha, adukha. Painful, pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant in terms of the physical. And then in terms of the mental, they have something similar. They use a different set of words, but it basically means the same thing. Somanasa, domanasa, asomanasa, adomanasa. Painful, pleasant, mental experience, and neither painful nor pleasant mental experience. So there are six forms our feelings can take, our sensations can take, upon contact. And in a way, of course, it delineates movements towards, because we tend to gravitate towards the pleasant, move away from the unpleasant, and kind of complete indifference when it comes to the neither pleasant nor the unpleasant. And it's quite, I think it's quite chastening to think that's the full range of your experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we tend to think we're very complex beings, and actually you experience the world only really in these three terms. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Like an amoeba. <laughs> yes. Not a lot of difference. We're a highly evolved organism, but not so much. Yeah. So, again, one of the things that's being said about this, is this a self? Well, of course, you know, to have any meaningful talk about the notion of a self, then we have to include something like sensation, yeah. feelings. And they change. That's the other thing. They're not static. Of course, this is a theme that's going to be running through all of these, and none of them will remain the same. Um, even our automatic sensations about things don't remain the same. Um, often to the annoyance of other people. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I thought you liked that. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Or, I didn't like that. I thought you liked it. <laughs> you know, it goes on like this, doesn't it? And it changes. Um, and we have no control over that. You know, the thing that we, you know, from childhood, perhaps dislike, you taste it again and perhaps you like it. Where does that come about? Yeah. It's just changed. It's slipped. It can fall into the neutral. You're completely indifferent to it. And then here mean neutrality in the sense of equanimity. I mean indifference. You can so easily fall into the indifferent category. So we're waxing and waning. We're moving between these. And actually, they can even change on a day-to-day basis. You watch a sensation in the body, and it will go from pleasant to unpleasant to neither, to pleasant to unpleasant to neither, and move around in the various categories, often. And it's not under our control. So we can say, on the first two categories, the first two aggregates, these are literally what is aggregated under the sense of form, the aggregate, everything which is aggregated under feeling or Vedana, we can say about both of those, they do not qualify at all, as none of them will, as you will gather. None of them will qualify for being a self because they are not under our control. They're also referred to in the texts as aggregates of dukkha, aggregates of grasping. 
There's a number of ways they're referred to. They are dukkha, because they're not under our control. And they're also dukkha because we grasp after them in an attempt to control them. And much, much suffering goes into trying to you know, stop ourselves from ageing, <laughs> from getting ill, and all the things. And I'm not making talking about sensory, sen- sensible precautions here. I'm talking about really grasping after trying to you know, keep ourselves in a particular condition, in a particular state. Much suffering goes into those when we attempt to control. Then we have a big category, and this is an enormous one. It's very, very important, which is the category of sanya. Um, sanya is usually translated as perception. So when you see the usual um, listing of these in books, it will go form, feeling, perceptions. Perceptions doesn't tell half the story, unfortunately. Um, it's everything that goes into perception and particularly also discrimination. And in this particular aggregate, there is something very important here. Um, It's, in a sense, how we construct our world. In many ways, and I'll leave this hanging in the air, you can perhaps pick this up as a question and answer if anybody wants to tomorrow, in one of the um, sessions we have in the afternoon which is in many ways that the practice of mindfulness works on the purification of perception and discrimination, on on the category of sanya. And I'll say more about that if you do ask me about it. On the what? It works on the purification of the aggregate of sanya, which is perception and discrimination. And just without getting into too many details, because I'll leave it if a question does arise, it means that actually most of our discriminations at the moment, at the present time, are conditioned. They come with baggage. In fact, they come with historical baggage. So that actually we never really, from this perspective, perceive anything anew. We only perceive it from past perceptions. So we see the world in a particular way, through habit. So sanya is an enormous category. It includes a lot about what it means even to be have this sense of self because it includes the category of memory as well. So let me try and put what's within the category of sanya because it's a big kind of baggy category. Yeah. It has aspects of perception and what's involved in perception? Well, what's involved in perception, according to this, and this is the technical description of it, the way it's put in Abhidhamma text, that Sanya takes an object and marks it for recognition. Yeah. So what's the chief way we have of marking an object? Language. Language, yes. So language is the way that we mark objects. So within the category of Sanya is also the metaphysics of language. So that when we see that green thing out there, we know it as tree. Now, to know that as tree, and to have marked it in that way, I've also got to be able to remember what the marker 
refers to. So the category of memory is extremely important within sanya. In fact, it's even more important because any sense of yourself, what is it based on? And the sense of a continuous self is based on memory. Which is why with degenerative brain diseases, senility, Alzheimer's, and these kinds of things, often people lose a complete sense of who they are. And this is why I really, really want to say that the the whole notion of what this is about in Buddhist thought, the the idea of not-self, is not about having no self. Because it's not like becoming... It's not trying to imitate somebody who has senility. (laughs) No sense of self whatsoever. In fact, it's a terrifying experience. If you've ever seen or witnessed somebody or known anybody who's had this, it's terrifying. These are frightened, really upset people because they do not know, literally, who they are anymore. Because the whole category of memory has dropped out. Both short-term and sometimes, long-term and sometimes short-term, even. So how does memory work in relationship to selfing? Because that's what it's about. Well, it's about being able to remember aspects of our past, isn't it? However, what you can say about this is, of course, that aspects of memory are extremely partial. You know, I, I, I hold this out just in case. Does anybody remember the whole of their life? No, <laughs> no we don't, do we? I don't think any of us would remember the whole of our life. It'd be impossibility. What we remember is important peaks and troughs, and sometimes just trivia that come up in our lives. Sometimes memory is evoked by all sorts of things, like sensory perceptions, um, for example. Memory can be held in smell, in taste and touch, and all of these things. And doesn't how we see the past depend on the mind state of the present? It does indeed, yes. Because... Sometimes, even when you've had a very good memory um, about a place and you go and revisit it, it's often completely different from the way that you remembered it. That's, again, it's very, very partial. And the reason why I'm trying to emphasise this is because our sense of self is constructed out of this ability to remember bits of who I was at the age of five, perhaps who I was at 10, at 15, at 20, and so on and so forth, up until your present age. And you might remember some of that very, very strongly, and I often joke about this, but might not remember what you did yesterday, or remember in any detail what you did the previous week. Yet some of those memories might be quite strong from the past. But also they will change. Certain memories will drop out, and others will come in. So our memory, our sense of self, is actually constructed on partial bits of memory which are strung together, which give us a sense of continuity. Now, in the way this is important, and I hope it doesn't again sound too technical, it's important because our sense of identity, well, our sense of identity is actually spurious. Yes, um, not really true, not really accurate. Yeah. It's, um, it's wrong in the sense that there isn't any identity. There is only continuity. 
In other words, who I am today depended on who I was at the age of five, at 15, at 20, and so on and so forth. And, in other words, what we have is a continuous stream of dependent arisings, but no one thing running through the whole phenomena. There is not one thing that runs through. In other words, there's not a self bobbing up at the age of five, which is identical to the, one, the age of 20, that bobs up again at the age of 30, or whatever it might be. You know, it's not that one thing. You can liken this to actually the way a rope is manufactured. Do you know how a rope is manufactured? Yeah. It's overlapping strands. All overlap. There's no one piece of string that ever runs the whole way through a rope. At all. <laughs> no, there's no one thing that runs all the whole way through the rope. It's overlapping entities. <laughs> so when you're hanging on that rope, <laughs> the strength, though, the interesting point, though, is the strength comes from the overlapping dimensions of it. And our strength of self, actually, is not in the relationship of the one thing that runs through it, but in the dependent arisings which hold together in a sense of continuity, who and what we are. So what is being exploded here is a myth of identity. That there is an identity within us. Now, actually, if we start to drop that, the sense of who am I? That big question that often people have. Who am I? Yeah. Who, I who am I really? You know, the people get terribly anguished about this stuff. Yeah. I want to be my real self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I keep joking about it, but it's really part of a current culture, um, although it's part of historic culture as well. All that anguish that goes into finding that when it isn't really there. Trying to find that. All of the energy is expended in trying to find that which isn't really there. And something actually far more exciting is there is the dynamism of things arising and passing away and arising and passing away, which constitute, in one sense, our continuity through life. So it's not identity, it's continuity. Uh, uh, what about the, the strong forces of habits and mm-hmm. tendencies that, I mean, repeat themselves again and again? Mm-hmm. It's not just kind of like a instantaneous happening, it's like habits. Mm. Well, that's the next category. <laughs> this is my continuity person <laughs> because the next category is the category of what's called formations which in some senses if you want to put the word on it habit will do as well as anything yeah. so the next aggregate is of habit so we have forms feelings discriminations and perceptions And then we have formations. Now, formations are really the activities of body, speech, and mind we engage in. And if you take a traditional view for countless lifetimes, if you take the view, the kind of narrow view, it's everything you've done in this lifetime in terms of body, speech, and mind. Obviously, with mind being predominant because it will drive activities of body and speech. And these in some ways, will become sedimented. They will take forms, in other words. But they're not immutable forms, because no habit remains exactly the same. It changes. 
it mutates in relationship to our interactions with the world. So, for example, and I'll mention this again next week, when you see the Tibetan iconography on the Wheel of Life, the Sankaras, or the Sankaras, which is what this is, is usually indicated by a figure who's basically um, moulding pots, so and actually forming them. So it's an activity that we're forming our lives in this way. We form it through acts of body, speech and mind. So it's also karma, because karma is action, too, with consequences. Now, some of those will repeat. I joked about it on the first night, we're compulsive neurotics. We keep repeating. Now, we keep repeating because, again, it's part of who we think we are a lot of the time. Not always, I'm saying, and not all of the categories of the Sankaras in that form, but we repeat because we think, A, and I'm not saying we think in some senses in a way that's cognitively recognised, but we have these deep implicit assumptions about the way life is that we have to keep doing certain things. This is the way things are. In other words, we have deeply embedded structures within us, formed out of past experience, which then determine present experience. Those also come into a relationship with the world and then are modified accordingly. So our habits don't remain identical, they remain similar, but not identical. So it's both formed, it's actually derived out of a word in Pali and Sanskrit, which is Sankara Sankata, formed and forming. So it's a dynamic. So they don't remain the same. And even our habits are not under our control, as we well know. (laughs) We often well know that our habits are not under our control. Same with the categories of our perceptions. That's not under our control. What we remember isn't under our control. If we grasp after you, the misery... Sometimes I put myself through trying to remember something, <laughs> and I can't remember it. You can't bring back memories in that way. Sometimes they come unbidden. So they're not under our control. We have no conscious volitional control over any of the aggregates. And then, finally, there is vinyana, consciousness. Now, again, consciousness in Buddhist thought is, is in some senses, distinguished against the prevalent ideas of the Buddha's time. And actually, this is very radical, and I think it's still very radical today, because a lot of the Buddhist traditions have retreated themselves into this idea. The Buddha was saying that there was no such thing as pure consciousness. Consciousness is always a dependent arising. It always had to have an object. The technical philosophical way of putting this is consciousness always intends an object. So if you like, object and consciousness arise together. You don't have consciousness which then views an object, but the both arise together. And that's a very radical view. It's radical, even as I say, in terms of 
the Buddhist historical time because the Upanishadic tradition said, well, what was the nature of this real self and the nature of this thing that the real self belonged to? The nature of the real self was pure consciousness. Consciousness without an object that didn't change at all. Now, consciousness in Buddhism changes according to whatever object. It's not the same consciousness arising. Consciousness is changing very, very rapidly, dependent on the object it comes in contact with. So much so that in the Abhidharma tradition, you get into them distinguishing something like 121 different forms of consciousness, arising and passing extremely quickly. Some of them are mundane and some of them are super mundane. Um, there are different listings, but 121 is the most exhaustive. I only say that simply to give you the idea that it's not, again, unitary. There is not one consciousness of what these are all little consciousness moments. There is consciousness arising and it doesn't arise alone. <laughs> Difficult to get your head around, isn't it, sometimes? this idea. If you want a parallel, there's a parallel actually in Western thought. Western thinking didn't get to this until the end of the 19th century, by the way. That's how long it took when a whole discipline grew up called phenomenology at the end of the 19th century, which started to actually think in terms of consciousness and what was the contents of consciousness. In other words, what objects did it have? You mean you can't have consciousness without something to be conscious of? That's it. Yeah. It's very simple. You can't be conscious without being conscious of something. Yeah. So the consciousness is, is dependent on the seeing to produce a perception. Yes. It's that sequence. Yes. See, seeing, seeing consciousness perception. Yeah. Seeing, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 a sequence. It's a dependent arising, and no the, no one bit can be isolated in some senses as being prior to any other part in the sequence. For perception to occur. Yeah. But uh, you said it also means you said consciousness intends an object. That's that right. kind of makes it sound a little different than arise together. Well, no, that's a technical use of the word intends. What it means is it, it's directed towards an oh, object. Okay. It's always mm-hmm. directed. I think the phrase that faith uses is actually a very useful one. One I normally use actually is consciousness is always consciousness of. There is never consciousness without it being conscious of something. Now that changed through the history of Buddhism, and again you might like to ask me some questions about that tomorrow, because you have um, aspects of Buddhism like Dzogchen, for example, which almost talks about pure awareness. Some of the Mahamudra traditions also talk about pure awareness. And this is very different from what it appears to me in the early text the Buddha is talking about in terms of consciousness. And consciousness is embodied consciousness as well. There is no such thing as disembodied consciousness floating around. So consciousness is always consciousness of, and if we listed all of the five aggregates one on top of the other, consciousness is conscious of all of the above. That is what it's conscious of. Because that is how, in a sense, we're constructing our world in this way. Now, as you can see, given what I'm saying about the movements and fluctuations of every other aspect of the the remaining four aggregates, um, and it's a bit more complicated than this, but everything that's fluctuating within the other four aggregates, then, of course, consciousness isn't unitary. 
is going to be changing. It's going to be flickering very, very rapidly. In fact, the mind itself, as consciousness moments, is a bit like a movie, you know, a piece of cinema strip that's going through very, 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 very fast and gives the illusion of something moving, you know, whereas actually still frames. And so the mind is like that, and the consciousness that's moving, that, that really is part of the nature of mind, is like that. It's happening extremely rapidly, very, very rapidly. So many thousands of consciousness moments in the blink of an eye. I don't know who counted them, but that's what's usually said in the text. Again, a bit of Indian hyperbole, usually. So these five aggregates are, in a sense, what constitute any meaningful talk about the self. None of them, as we can see, can be identified as a self. And if you are, you're on to a loser, aren't you? If you want to identify with your physical form as being in yourself, you are just laying yourself open for dukkha. If you want to grasp after any of your feelings as being yourself, you're laying yourself open to dukkha. And so on and so forth. I won't repeat it all the way through. Each instance when you try to grasp after any of them as being self, then you are going to suffer. And you will suffer. Yet we do, unwittingly, often grasp after dimensions of it as being ourselves. So the self, as a verb, is the operation of all of these five aggregates. That is all it is. So the self, as a dependent arising, is empty of, and I'll give you the formula that we'll keep on repeating throughout the rest of the retreat, the self is empty or void of any intrinsic existence. It doesn't mean that you don't have a self. It means it doesn't exist again in the way that you perhaps apprehend it, think it does. The immediate apprehension, again, perhaps is of something quite solid, particularly, as I suggested earlier on, in terms of negative emotions. When negative emotions arise, you feel the solid sense of self, sometimes even in positive emotions as well. So this is the first level, in some senses, of taking us into beginning to understand and loosen the grip that we hold on things and self. Because in a way, what the Buddha is going to say, obviously not in the same way, but in the same way that the self is a construct, a construct out of various processes, then the world around us is equally constructed. It lacks any substantiality. There's a technical term for this, and it's called dravyasat. It lacks substance. It merely is a conceptual reality that we perceive. Concepts are very useful, as long as you don't believe in them. <laughs> the concept of a chair is very useful. You know, when I ask somebody to put one up the front here so I can sit on it. But it doesn't mean it has any substantial existence. And I mean by that, not that it doesn't exist, because it plainly does exist. But it doesn't exist in the way that I perhaps think it exists. Now, language is a big part of this. And I'll just mention this because it'll be somewhere else we'll be going in, in the next couple of weeks. 
language plays a big part in this. Why I say this, that, that actually concept is useful as long as we don't believe in it too seriously. So it's how we hold concepts. So the concept of self isn't a problem. You know, if you look through the text, the Buddha still refers to, you know, my past life, what I did, you know, I would like. You know, it helps them communicate. And so you're going to continue to use the language of I, me, and mine. But, in a sense, it's how do you hold those terms. So this exercise of beginning, and some of you I know are doing it, some perhaps not, of beginning to see things in, as not I, not me, and not mine, is beginning to loosen your relationship and the grip on those particular concepts. Because actually, in themselves, they're fairly innocuous. It's the way that you hold those concepts you know, of self and the possessives that go with them, me and mine, that becomes the dangerous part of it. So this is the doctrine of anatta. Now, again, it's very easy you know, to sit here and talk about it. This is to be explored in your experience. To be seeing what's going on in identification with body, with feelings. You know, it's not saying, oh, I have this unpleasant feeling arising. I don't really take any notice of it. You know, this is an unpleasant feeling, I really want to avoid it. <laughs> you know, that's the sort of thing that actually happens in real life, isn't it? You know, this is for the purpose of analysis, of beginning to get us to see things and hold them slightly differently, so that you can begin to see what's going on in each of these five aggregates. Now, one of consciousness is slightly more difficult, and actually is much more extensive. Um, even in the Satipatthana Sutta, you'll find a whole thing of the examination of citta, you know, which is the third of the um, basic inquiries in the Satipatthana, ways of establishing mindfulness. So citta is quite extensive. However, you can begin to see the way that consciousness is always that consciousness off. It's always arising in relationship to an object. You can see the way that Vedana is always arising, the way that the formations. You can catch yourself out sometimes in habit, in just ordinary habits. You know, habits of body, speech and mind. Propensities of the ways of thinking about things. Propensities in the ways that you do things. And the way that you speak. Yeah. The Vedanas, well, that's an exercise you're doing, seeing what happens. Yeah. The way that we are constructing our sense of self. Yeah. The way that language reinforces that, because language is part of that sense of our discrimination of ourselves. Yeah. Western languages in particular, and quite a lot of languages, work on the basis of subject and predicate. Yeah, so it actually screams at you, I am a self, because it says, I am happy, I am unhappy, I am this, I am that. Yeah. And when you have a predicate of experience, such as sadness or happiness, there has to be a subject which it conforms to, because otherwise you haven't got a well-formed sentence in English, have you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you can't just say, happiness, sadness. <laughs> yeah. No languages like that. Uh, Chinese to a certain extent, yeah. Yeah. Um, Sanskrit to a lesser, lesser degree. But you know, you're doing this with these languages. Yeah. So, in other words, it's saying there is an I. 
because there's got to be there's got to be a subject that conforms to these predicates. I'm not saying you even think this consciously, but what I'm saying is it reinforces our styles of thinking and our ways of thinking. Yet, as we probably well know in English, there's not every subject predicate sentence where we are gulled into thinking there's a subject. Such as, it is raining. What is the it doing the raining? (laughs) There's no it doing the raining, just as there's no I having the sadness. Mm -hmm. So actually, when you say sadness, happiness, whatever the predicate is, actually is more accurate. However, we wouldn't say it in English. So bear in mind the way that the language structures, such as those very simple ones, and those very, very simple I've just given you, are helping to reinforce our sense of I. And most Western languages work in some form of that that basis, in terms of subject and predicate. Okay, well, I think I've bombarded you enough, and I just want to see if there's any brief questions, and we'll keep this down to 15 minutes just this evening, because we've got a whole session uh, tomorrow for this. So I want to see if anything's arising immediately that people want to ask about this. This is going to form the basis, by the way, for our further exploration. Yeah, so understanding this is important. So please, if there is anything that isn't understood, anything I've said that hasn't been comprehensible, please come back at me. I'm interested in the whole thing around tendencies and, you know, character. Because, mm. we, I mean, I, I can sort of hear what you're saying. I think, yeah, okay, and understand it. But I still have this sort of thing in the back of my mind that sort of says, um, you know, we all have qualities. Yes, someone could be kind of shy, you know, generally through their whole life. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, is that always because they remembered when they were shy before? And, you know, people have, people have sort of personalities they're born with. I mean, I, I, you know... I don't know, or maybe they don't, but mm. I just can't, I can't quite believe that everything is just built up in the way that you said. I mean, well, I mean... I mean it, yeah, genetic. Well, there might be that. that on, you know. Some of that might be that, but it depends on even how you hold those characteristics. Yeah. What we're saying is they're not fixed. Even a shy person can step out of their shyness mm. on occasion. You know, and their shyness will vary. Right, yeah. so you're saying they have, can have these things, but they don't need to so heavily identify with them. And it's the identification them. with them. It's not. I mean, yeah. personalities are not a problem. Come on. I mean, even, the, even when you read the suttas, the Buddha has a personality. Mm. Yeah, he has a distinct personality that comes through to a degree, you know, given the ancientness of the text. Um, so the personality is not the problem. It's the way you hold it, whether it's completely fixed. Mm. You know, I can't possibly do this because I am this sort of person. Yeah. Yeah. We all have, often have a tendency to do that, you know, even if we don't say it and verbalise it, we might think it. I can't possibly do that because I'm this kind of person. <laughs> now, really what, what's going on there, and this is the important part about it, and I really will explore this, it's just only the beginning, so don't worry about this at this stage, but, but really what we're beginning to explore is the sense of when we have this I, this sense of self, that we so strongly identify through things like personality, through feelings and memories and everything else, we, in some sense, create a cage for ourselves. You know, a cage which we don't very often step out of. You know, and it's rather claustrophobic. You know, so if you want a feeling tone to being a self, it's frustration, obsession, it's despair, it's depression. And I hope I'm <laughs> linking into some of the feelings that are often around actually being a self in this world. Yeah, there's other good ones. <laughs> yeah, there are some good ones as well. well okay. Come on, this is Buddhism, that's right. 
But these are the these are the kinds of things that people suffer from. Remember, that's our starting point. What what are we suffering from? Yeah, of course, there are good things in life. Yeah, you know, there's no denying that. But one of the but one of the you know, prevalent feeling tones of life for most people in its difficulty is elements such as that. You know, despair, difficulty, depression. You know, in varying degrees, of course, in all of these cases. Um, obsessional thinking, worry, anxiety. All of these are to do with being a self. Now, I, I, I hope you get just a sort of sense, even just using those words, that they're terribly claustrophobic. You know, they close you in on yourself. If I'm anxious, I can go... You, know, you see it in people's body language, they go in on themselves. You think, know? I'm really anxious. <laughs> you know, you're kind of closed in on yourself. Or I'm worried. That closes you in on yourself. And so if that is the predominant thing, and you, you've got to explore this, if that is the predominant feeling tone of what it means to be a self in this strongly fixated way, then there is no spaciousness to it. There's no air, there's no light, there's actually very little of allowing the joys in, because it's so difficult. It's so difficult trying to keep yourself together. And I'm not just saying, kind of picking this out of the air. This is stuff I see around me a lot of the time. Yeah. So it's the movement here. And if you want to use it, I'm going to continue to use this. Because actually I'm going to now, say, instead of using the term empty, which has all these negative connotations, is spacious. What you're trying to do in, in these movements, in these meditations, in these inquiries even in the talks like this, is to try and break out of this tangled knot, which, as I say, can often have this feeling tone of claustrophobia, entrapment within it, into something which is far more spacious, far more airy, far more light, far more playful, actually, less solid in life. Yeah. That's the feeling tone which is really within the notion of voidness, emptiness, and everything else, which I personally don't like as words very much. Yeah. So when you're feeling happy in, you know, in life, which mm. I do a lot of the time, mm. you say that's the time when you're not in the self. Oh, or, yes. Or, or if, is there happy times in being... Particularly, particularly, particularly if your happiness is associated with stepping out and being with others and helping others yeah. and caring for others... Often that's when you're most yourself, in a way, you know, in, a, in a spacious sense of it. You know, when you're stepping out into the world, mm. when you're being out there with others, being for others, as opposed to being for oneself. Yeah. It's a very different experience. I'm sure you all must know this. You know, that feeling of lightness that comes with actually just being with others in a genuine way as opposed to just simply being for yourself, which is egotism. Yeah, Justin. Can you relate that to the often, the, the experience that a lot of people have of the kind of um, up and down nature of practice where you go through, you might have a few days where everything's really great and all your sittings are really light and spacious and gorgeous mm. and whatever, and then you get the kickback where suddenly everything kind of goes a bit weird and... Mm -hmm. 
Yes, it can be. It can be. It can be the backlash. It can be the backlash. Loosening up ego structures, allowing things to happen, often kicks in old habit patterns as well. Initially, because they haven't been eradicated, they come back. It's like the return of the repressed, in many ways. So it's it's often it is often up and down this bumpy ride, but it's it's kind of going with the motion. It's going with the bumpiness. You know, going from the feeling of closure to the feeling of openness, to the feeling of closure to the feeling of openness. That's where the practice of equanimity, you know, even, even in a sort of very low level and patience, is extremely useful within this. Yeah. I but wondered if you might more relate it to what you've just talked about. Mm-hmm. Directly, was it a big question? It's a, it's, a big, it's a big question, yes. I mean, what we go through in practice really is not a lot different to what we go through in life except in a controlled way. This is the way I see it, that what we're doing in meditative experience is often settling into, let's say, states where we feel more conscious of others, more conscious of contentment, more consciousness of a spaciousness, of peacefulness. And sometimes that comes about naturally in life, doesn't it? You, know, you don't have to control it, you have, don't have to contrive it, sometimes that comes about. Here we are, we are actually working on cultivating it, that word I was using the other night, we're working on cultivating it. However, that cultivation sometimes slips because of, um, we, to use a Christian term, we fall. What do we fall back into? We both fall back into habitual patterns of mind, which reassert themselves. Because actually trying to maintain this state of, and I'd say the try, because often we grasp after it as well, trying to maintain this state of calmness, perhaps more connectedness to others, depending on what the meditation or cultivation practice is, requires energy. And actually, I'm not, and I'm not being um, negative about this, just sometimes just we're, we're just lazy. Mm-hmm. It's far easier to fall back yeah. into patterns. And then the other side reasserts itself. And then perhaps we get a bit more energy and we'll then start to cultivate again properly. And actually, if you look over the pattern, not just say of a retreat, of a person's practice throughout a lifetime, it will often be that. It's often, again, generating, and this is why it's part, obviously, of the Eightfold Path, right effort to get through. Because sometimes we put all our effort in, um, say, for a couple of days, and then we've got nothing left to spare. And so then the patterns and the habits reassert themselves. Yeah, and then the battery revives a bit, and then you put a bit more in again. And because you're going at it too hard, and this is often the way people go at it too hard, you know, they, they put too much in. So it's actually it's getting that balance, that middle way between too little effort and too much effort. Yeah. And that will often help to reduce the peaks and troughs mm-hmm. side of it. And Christina put it into before Christmas you put it in terms of um, reaching the point where you're not um, where you're, you're staying focused on where you want to be rather than falling off and pulling yourself backwards yeah that's right just staying centred yeah well that falling that falling is pretty well the same as I'm talking about that falling off yeah. you just you just fall back into patterns and you see this in daily life and I see these people who do long term retreats and then go off outside and they'll maintain it for a certain while and then they just fall back mm into the patterns, because those patterns, let's not underestimate them, are very, very strong. Those sankharas are extremely strong. 
than we are used to. Because we've developed them at least over a lifetime. If you take a traditional perspective, you've developed them over lifetimes. Yeah. I mean, I stick with the, you know, the former over a lifetime. And that's difficult enough. If you've developed something over a lifetime, then it's not going to be easy you know, to, in a sense, be eradicated, to be uprooted. It will take it will take time, but it will take balanced effort to do that as well. Um, on, on that um, point of lifetime or lifetimes, mm. um, it's I've still never been able to quite grasp what what it is that's the continuity. Is it this consciousness that just according to the uh, well, the Buddha absolutely refutes that idea. <laughs> I mean, actually, in the Sutta text, I mean, the Buddha is asked that question: "Is it the same consciousness which continues over?" And he said, "Absolutely not." But then doesn't give any explanation as what does. <laughs> okay, so he. But, but I mean, but he does. That is the theory that he's propounding: that, that there are continual um, rebirths. Without this is a big topic. <laughs> I did say it. <laughs> I mean, you might want to raise that. I really don't want to foreclose these questions, but I mean, it might be one you want to ask tomorrow. Basically, because it's a highly contentious issue within the Buddhist tradition, and there are many, many different ways of looking at it. Uh, just a quick answer to that. I mean, the, the tradition as it grew up, I mean, it might be, it's interesting, first of all, to note that the Buddha might talk about rebirth but he will never give any explanatory mechanism as to what goes on. Even when asked, it's highly illuminating. He said, what is reborn? He's asked, what is reborn? He said, well, it's not the same, but it's not different either. I'll leave you with that one (laughs) to think about. I think it's easy to sort out. But he doesn't give any explanatory mechanism to what, what, in a sense, continues over at all. So it's left to, in the beginning, the Abhidhamma tradition to start to try and find a mechanism for this. And so it builds in then a rebirth consciousness. And that's the first appearance you get of it. And it's not actually what's within the Sutta material at all. And then it goes off into all sorts of regions when you get into its development in China and in Tibet and various other places. You you get all these metaphysical um, things going on. But the Buddha doesn't say anything about it whatsoever. And I actually, my personal view on this, and if you want to explore it with me tomorrow, I'm quite happy to do it, that it's a metaphor. It's very, very much a metaphor. (laughs) It's a metaphor for the way that consciousness operates. So in other words, each moment is a rebirth. Each consciousness moment. Because something is being carried over. Until there is nothing to carry over, habits will continue to be propounded ways of suffering will continue to be experienced. But this is contentious, so I shall leave it at that. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you, everybody, and uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate